0: Hello again, everybody. Welcome to the Dharma Toolkit podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. I'm delighted to welcome you back in this early summer to another episode. Our podcast is focused generally on community. What is it like to be part of a Buddhist community worldwide? How do we imagine Buddhist practice to be in the 21st century, particularly at the end of a very difficult 18 months, still for some people, right in the heart of a pandemic? This episode was originally intended to focus on Buddhist Action Month, which happens every year and is something our community takes part in alongside many other Buddhist communities. The theme of it is usually around social engagement, some kind of forum for looking at Buddhist practice in the context of social and ecological issues. This year, we decided to do something a bit different for the podcast and go big and go broad and talk about the role of beauty and art in life. I'm very happy to welcome back to the podcast this week, one of our occasional guest editors, the wonderful Padma Chandra. We worked together last year. It was one of the highlights of the year, doing a series around notions of, well, what does it mean to engage with truth, poetry, beauty and art? as Dharma practitioners, as Buddhists. And Pama Chandra brought together a wonderful set of guests and we wove a lovely set of conversations, which we'll link to she seemed the perfect person to guide us through this conversation. Pamachandra is also the illustrator of a recently published book with her friend Karen Swan called The Tale of the Whale, which we featured on the site. It's got an environmental theme, which is how it flows nicely into Buddhist Action Month. We may hear more about that later and we'll link to it in the show notes so you can go and check it out, including the very lovely video of the writer and illustrator talking together about their work. And she's going to be particularly welcoming her friend, Vilokini, who's going to be sharing in the conversation with us. But first, I'd like to welcome our sort of co-host, sort of partner in mischief, partner in crime, Sadaya Sihi from Dublin in Ireland. Welcome, Sadia Sihi.
1: Thanks, Chandradasa. It's been a while since I've been on one of these podcasts. Nice to be back. I'm in Dublin, it's summer, and I'm sitting in my room, but I have sun cream on because I got sunburned at the weekend. That's an indication the weather has been really nice here, and I've been able to get out quite a bit, which has been really, really lovely, really welcome, being out hiking at the weekend and swimming in the sea. I'm also really happy to be here for this podcast. I'm at the moment taking part in two concurrently running practice weeks, Dharma practice weeks, one at work with Dharma Chakra, our team, which myself and Chandra Dasa are part of. And another one in the community I live in, in Dublin, where we're actually looking at the greater mandala of uselessness, and that's our framework for this week really would just want to explore creativity in its broadest sense. And yeah, I just found this theme of the Greater Mantle of Uselessness really a good hook for exploring creativity for our practice week. And then I was really curious to see that Padmachandra had actually written, jotted a few notes about this idea of the Greater Mantle of Uselessness in her ideas for this podcast. So I'm really looking forward to hearing how it unfolds. And also I have an interest in Buddhist action Month and how it engages in the world.
0: Thanks, Adaisi. Lovely to have you with us. And Pep Chandra, welcome back to the podcast. You're such a pro now that this is almost your domain. Thanks very
2: much, Chandra Dasa. Yes, I'm in my situation where I do care work. So I'm actually with a lovely client at the moment in the Malvern Hills, which is absolutely beautiful. Yes, beautiful weather. Everywhere you look, there's beauty. So I'm very well and it's lovely to be back and really appreciate this opportunity to be here.
0: I'm also delighted to welcome, for the first time to the podcast, an old friend, Vilokini, who I haven't seen for some years, actually, and she's there resplendent in her lovely house in Cambridge. I'm so happy you could join us, Vilokini. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much. I'm at home in Cambridge. I've had quite an interesting year because before lockdown, I was doing a lot at the centre and I was curating art exhibitions. Well, of course, that's all stopped. So my main focus for the last 15 months has been gardening and photography. So I've been surrounded by beauty with the garden. And that's where I've been all week in this beautiful sun as well. So, yeah, I'm doing well. I'm very, very happy to be here. It's lovely to chat with you and chat with Pugman Chandra, who is in my chapter.
0: Thanks for looking, in. Eh? A garden seems like a good place to start this conversation, now that I think of it. Papa Chandra, you were very generous as ever in agreeing to hold the conversation for us. And yeah. in all the communication we had by email, and I know in your conversations with Philokini, we've been talking about just how do we weave together the environmental side of this, the ecological awareness, with this wider mandala of beauty and, as, as I say, he was saying, Sangra teaching about the greater mandala of uselessness which is a very beautiful idea. The fact that you just have intrinsic value in terms of who you are as a human being, but then what you do matters. So what was your thought about a way into a conversation that flows between those subjects?
2: Well, it started off with just the book. And then I thought, well, who would I really like to have a conversation with? And I thought of Volokhany, who, as she says, she's in my chapter, but also there's quite a lot of overlaps. Volokhany's been involved in making books herself. As she said, she calls herself a curator and she's very generous and involved in supporting other people in their art and in the process of art and creating beautiful exhibitions at the Cambridge Buddhist Centre in the UK. And she's led arts retreats. I think one of the things when Velo and I spoke And I've observed very much with Volokhany that overarching all her love of photography, of environmentalism, of gardening, is this love of beauty. And it's something that I observe. I've got a couple of other friends who seem to live in the light of beauty. They make that a bit of a guiding principle. And I'm a bit in awe of that. And I'm quite sort of almost mystified by it. I find the whole idea of beauty just quite mystifying. So I thought of Volokhany. And when we were talking It just became clear that, yes, beauty would be a really good thing to talk about. And I'm really curious about what on earth is it? (laughs) Myself, I just have never really thought about it. I mean, often you have beauty, truth and goodness in the philosophical tradition. They're sort of together. There's something about just being and being willing to be, yes, in this greater mandala of uselessness, which just to say a little bit more about that, what Sangarashita says, I think he talks about it in his book, Wisdom Beyond Words, he says that although we obviously need to do things in the world, and there is things of use to be done in the world, well, what's helpful is to have them in this greater mandala of uselessness, is what he talks about. And I think for environmentalists, this is probably quite an important area. Where do you come from in your action as an environmentalist? So that's really why I was interested to have this conversation with you, Valokhani. Just to explore this whole thing about beauty.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, in contrast to Paddha Chandra, really beauty has been my whole life. All my life, I think. Because my art school training originally was in fashion and printed textiles. And then I went on to be a knitwear designer. Then I worked on magazines and I was doing interiors, shoots. I did a lot of books on interiors traveled around the world with a photographer taking photographs of beautiful houses. And it just gave me such a great sense of satisfaction. And then when I became a Buddhist, I started wondering whether that was all a bit superficial. But actually, I was encouraged to just keep going, you know, just keep doing what I loved. But after a career in that, I wanted to do an MA in printmaking. So I went back to art school. In fact, the same art school that you went to, Padmashanda, we both were there doing the RMA, the Anglia Rusking in Cambridge. And I did printmaking, which led on to photography. So that's my main creative personal outgoing now. But behind all of that is my love of gardening. So interiors, gardening, making things, photography. I can't imagine my life without it because it's a sort of refuge for me. I've had a lot of painful experiences in my family. And every time I can really work with my negative mental states by absorbing myself in beauty. And that's really important. It sort of helps lift me out of negative. It also gives me very positive states because you're right in the moment. If you're taking a photograph or if you're planting beans, you're right in the moment, and it's really, really important. Then there's the experience of making beauty for the future. There's beauty in the moment. There's beauty in the future. So, yeah, it's always been the guiding principle of my life.
2: Can I just ask, Valokini, what do you actually mean by beauty? What does that word mean for you?
3: When you asked this question in the notes, I had to really think about it. What does beauty mean to me? And it doesn't always mean pretty or terribly beautiful in the sense of everything being harmonious or balanced. And one of the things that I've been following and doing with another order member called Vajra is looking at wabi-sabi. It's a Japanese concept of aesthetics. And wabi-sabi is the beauty of things imperfect, impermanent and incomplete. So it's pointing to the Buddhist idea of the three lakshanas, which is suffering, impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. So sometimes you can look at something that's not considered beautiful, maybe a crack in the ceiling, and it points to something real. So beauty I think is something that's real. Truth, I suppose you'd say. Yeah. I was really
2: reflecting on this myself and I have a sense that well sometimes something happens a sensation arises or you see something and there's a response but the response is not something you could have predicted or it's not something that comes from your thoughts at all it's almost an animal not an animal response but a sort of release of energy or just a bodily response to something i don't know if you know what i mean sometimes just witnessing a beautiful act of kindness or just an image It goes in directly without you having... I'm sometimes surprised by it because maybe something moved me and I didn't intellectually think I'd been moved. I think it might be connected a bit with the word pretty in meditation means when you've got that tingly feeling in the body. So I think for me, there's this sort of response that beauty has, a bodily response beyond the sort of self-will and I also wonder if there's some sort of pure experience of beauty that's possible. I don't know whether there are layers of purity with it. There's the word Shuba in Buddhism as well, which means beautiful. And I think it also has a kind of connotation of purity, which might connect with what you were saying about truth.
3: Yes, and I think the experience of beauty can just take you right outside yourself, thinking about yourself. Yes. It takes you beyond your self-view, so you forget yourself. When you're making anything beautiful, that's the whole joy of it. Is if you're going to do something well, you forget yourself. As soon as you start thinking, what am I doing, and being self-conscious about it, it can be very jarring. And then you're not getting into the flow, which is what we do when we're making art. Another reason why I say that beauty is so important is because it helps me to stop being self-centered. I feel like I am in that bigger mandala. I become bigger when I'm not thinking about myself. Hmm.
2: So there's something, as you say, about not being aware of the self, being totally involved in something. When we had this chat before, you talked about aliveness. And for me, there's an element of freedom as well. There's a sort of feeling of freedom. There's a quality of freedom with beauty.
3: Yes, it's a very big word, isn't it? Beauty. But I like to think of focusing in and really looking. It's about really looking and becoming very intimate with something. That's something we were talking about, intimacy with a place or intimacy with a plant or intimacy with nature. One of the big projects I did in my life was when I did my MA final project and I decided to do basing it loosely around Wabi Sabi on the forgotten parts of the Cambridge Buddhist Centre, which is a Georgian theatre. So upstairs in the gods, as were, No one goes up there except perhaps on open days when there's a tour. And this theatre was built in 1814, so it's seen a lot of life. It's been a Christian mission hall, it's been a theatre, and in the 1920s it was made into a state-of-the-art theatre. So it's had a lot of life, and now it's the Cambridge Buddhist Centre. And I found that I was going up there with my camera and starting to regret why I'd said I was going to do this, because there was nothing there. There were dusty floorboards A few old staircases, and I couldn't see what on earth I was going to do, but I'd done my proposal, so I felt, well, I've got to stick it. And I started going there day after day with my camera, and I started to get intimate with the space. So, what happened was, I looked and I watched the light coming through the blinds, the light coming through the grills, and it traveled across the floor, these dusty, empty floorboards. And I thought, my goodness, I'm watching the world move here. So I took lots and lots of photographs of the shadows, of the light. And I took those photographs and made them into prints when I was in the print room. And then I hung those prints up on the walls. And I then photographed the prints and made them into a photopolymer print, which is a sort of form of printmaking. And what I noticed with the intimacy was I became aware of all the people that were no longer there. So the light was still there, the dust was still there. But I became aware of all the people that had worshipped in that place and worshipped now, or who had been entertained. And apparently at the top of the gods, the girls from Girton College would go to watch the theatrical productions, but they had to be home by 10 o'clock, so they had to leave before the end of the play so they could get home in time. So I was just very aware of these absences and it became a very beautiful place for me because of the intimacy. So I think intimacy is also part of appreciating beauty. That's just a brilliant
2: story and I can really relate to that, just getting up close and I'm sure you have this with gardening as well, just really getting up close to plants and grass and earth and details.
3: The other thing about that story is that the process itself took over. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. So I forgot myself and just got the intimacy and just started looking very, very closely. And the process itself took me in directions that I didn't know I was going to go in. So I hadn't planned it. I didn't have a vision for the end result. And that's often the way if you can forget what you think people might like. We were talking about that the other day as well. It's quite interesting. For instance, I've been guilty of putting pictures on Instagram and Facebook and just really wondering how many likes I'm going to be getting. So I've sort of stopped that at the moment. I've just picked it up again. And when I was at art school, it was, will those tutors like what I've done? When I was doing that project, that dropped away. And I got so involved over months in allowing the process to happen through me. Does that happen when you're doing your illustrations?
2: I think it does when I'm doing observational drawing, particularly. Yes. You just get very, very connected with what you're looking at. There's something about that that does take you out of yourself, because really it's just awareness and sensations It just comes down to that. And there isn't really a sort of idea of a self there.
1: This is the beauty of talking to people who are different experiences. And I think I would probably be more like you, Padma Chandra, than Balokani in terms of the response to the word beauty. I think, well, maybe I have an instinctive response. Well, maybe sometimes I find the word beauty a little intimidating because, you know, you layer things on sometimes. And for me, I'm not an artist. And sometimes when I think of beauty, I think of external things and how things look. But then I also know My experience of things I consider beautiful, and they're not necessarily, well, often they arise in relationship with other people. It's just been really interesting listening to both of you talk about the different qualities, that it's not necessarily pretty, as in beautiful to look at. This idea of intimacy, self-forgetfulness, and what you said, Padmachandra, about pretty, this feeling in the body. And it was just making me reflect what my last experience of something I said was beautiful. And actually, it was in relation to a conversation I had with a friend. She's talking about her Dharma practice, actually. She was talking about something that she struggles working with. is a lot of ill will coming up. And it's something that she's worked on for quite a while. And I know her over a number of years. And I see how she's working with it. And she's actually really engaging with it. And she said to me towards the end of it sometimes it continues to arise and there is that moment where you want to push it away but she said alongside that there's this really deep sense of joy that she has these tools to work with it and that she's just so happy that she's a follower of the buddha and she said that to me and just my heart really opened when she said it because it felt like it was a really real thing. I mean, what does one mean when you say real? It just felt like the ring of truth about it, and it was really beautiful, a really beautiful thing to hear. So it's just kind of interesting, isn't it, when you start reflecting on beauty. It's kind of everywhere, isn't it? Really? It can yes. be everywhere and everything.
2: Thank you, Sadhusi. That's really, really helped because what you were saying at the beginning about it has other things layered onto it. I think that's true for me, that the things layered onto it are how is it connected to ownership and do I have to be very refined? Is it all very bright? But I think when I was talking to you, Kune, we were talking about places where we experience beauty, whether geographically or in our lives. And I remembered some photographs you'd taken of the barns on the fens. They had beauty, but it was very sort of moody and not all bright and everything.
3: Yes, I take part in a photography group with two photographers called Tim Clinch and Joanna McClellan. It's called Two Photographers. So we've been doing that online for a year now. And one of the subjects they were talking about was ambiance. So in photographs, if you can get some sort of atmosphere. And I was going out to the fence. I thought I'd go out and do a day out in the fence. And I woke up, it was pouring with rain, absolutely pouring. So Tim always says, when you're taking photographs, imagine you need a day that's like the inside of a Tupperware box. So you get that very, very gentle light rather than bright sunshine. So that day was absolutely pouring with rain. So I got up at half past seven and I went out to the fence. It wasn't that far away, it was just near Ely. But I had the idea of barns and I went down a little track and I was talking to a farmer who opened a level crossing for me, just some gates. But I had a very interesting conversation with him about his fields because he was saying, oh, we're not allowed to spray our sugar beet anymore because the EU say this is just after we'd left the EU. And he said, I'm not allowed to spray it against this virus. Because apparently, if it's cold enough, the virus dies. If it's not cold enough, it's not. So, that led me into looking at the soil and thinking, well, the soil here is churned up by the plough. It's sprayed with an antivirus. And in the process of churning up the soil, they're letting carbon out. So, I was sort of aware of that when I was taking this photograph and I saw a barn in the distance. And it just had a poignancy. So, it's the poignant quality, I think, of a photograph that I often like of an object. There's a photographer called Paul Hart who does a lot of photographs of the fens, and they're actually quite bleak pictures, and the fens are quite bleak. You know, there's this agriculture going on, there's very few people there, I think, and a lot of buildings are quite abandoned. The barn I was taking the picture of had been abandoned, but it was now apparently a refuge for barn owls, so that had another aspect to it. A lot of the photographs I take are not of things that you might think of as beautiful. I've got one picture that I took recently of an old tap on a wall, and it just says standpipe, and it's actually not beautiful at all. But to me, it's got that feeling of poignancy of something that's useful. But I also read today, Leonardo da Vinci, apparently, advised painters who lacked inspiration when faced with nature to contemplate with a reflective eye a crack in an old wall. So this is very much a wabby-sabby point of view, just contemplate something that is breaking up or something that's been abandoned or something that has been let rot, really. And it's pointing to the fact that everything is going out of existence. That can be quite a poignant thing and quite a beautiful thing. One thing
0: that occurred to me listening to you speak there, Vlokini, about poignancy, particularly in relationship to the aspects of existence that Wabi Sabi points to, the impermanence, the fact that things are always moving in and out of being, it struck me that that's an interesting angle on environmentalism. Quite often when we speak about Buddhist engagements with the environment or ecological issues, we are engaging with the agency that human beings have and how we can make a difference what we can bring in as Buddhists that's positive. I suppose another side of it is also just one of the contributions we may have to make is holding a really clear, explicit awareness of the fact that things are changing, the fact that things are impermanent, sometimes even the fact that they're broken. There's something about holding the brokenness. I wonder if that rings any bells, even Padma Chandra, why you decided to illustrate a book and why you decided to illustrate it about an area that is, for some people, quite painful, that the environment is being damaged and it's harder for whales to survive and the kinds of things that stir people up typically. But there's another aspect as Buddhists that we're invited to sit with.
2: Yes. Well, something that I was thinking a bit about was, we're just touching on that, there is this idea of beauty being all lightness. You could have this idea, it's all about refinement on a sort of superficial level. But what I notice in my illustrations is that when it's not working, it's the balance between lightness and darkness, or complexity and simplicity, completeness and incompleteness. There's something about that balance that is important to make something work. So I was reflecting on maybe art is kind of echoing for us this continual process of dissolution and coming together. Even when we're meditating, we see this as something about witnessing the arising and the falling of things, of sensations, or watching a Greek tragedy. (laughs) I wonder if there's some sort of basic reflection in art that is reflecting this for us all the time. And that's why it's beautiful, because we experience chaos and then some sort of resolution and then chaos. And how that connects to environmentalism and the difficulty, I wonder if if we can frame these questions of the environment and Earth in this greater mantle of beauty, of things arising and falling away, whether it helps to bring more perspective somehow. I don't quite know how, but certainly with the Tale of the Whale picture book, it's about plastic pollution. But... Most of the book is really celebrating the beauty and wonder of the sea through the illustrations and the beautiful words. And it was really important to set that up. And then it's quite moving because in the story you see the whale swallowing all this plastic, but luckily the whale carries on. <laughs> but it's just an uncomfortable moment. And then it's more of an incentive at the end for children and for adults too to do something about it, but it's on this basis of beauty. But I don't know if anyone else has got any thoughts on this. How can beauty help with this challenge, this huge challenge to humanity and the earth?
3: Well, I think what it flags up is that we're all so connected to the earth. I mean, I'm finding that growing vegetables, growing as much food as I can, which isn't a lot, and it certainly isn't self-sufficiency, it just makes me so aware that we are connected. Because I'll plant a seed, I'll nurture it, I'll put it in the ground, it'll grow. I'll pick it, I'll take it home and cook it and eat it, and then it becomes me. So there's no separation between me and the earth. And the other thing I really find very beautiful is compost. You know, the same thing, all the kitchen peelings go onto the compost heap. All the things that I'm taking out of the allotment go onto the compost heap. After a few months, it really is to me a really exciting thing. This beautiful, friable compost, which is full of life, full of bacteria and tiny, small insects that we can't see. And it then goes back onto the soil, which then feeds the plant. So the whole flow of interconnectedness is a very beautiful thing. And food doesn't come from nowhere. There's been a huge interest in growing food over lockdown. I think a lot of people probably have time to really focus in and examine what they're doing and are growing more vegetables, which has made people more connected.
2: Yes, interconnectedness. I suppose then you don't feel you're on your own with it. You feel you're part of a bigger thing. So you don't feel like I've got to do something about this environmental crisis.
1: It's a really interesting question. What can beauty offer? when we think about this environmental crisis and how to be an environmentalist as a Buddhist. And actually, the first thought I had was maybe, again, just coming back to the greater mandala of uselessness, and this idea of non-utilitarianism, about things existing just for their own sake. I don't know if any of you have listened, Maitreya Bandy did an interview with Charles Eisenstein a couple of months ago and one of the things that just really stayed with me that Charles Eisenstein had said in the course of this conversation just raised the question is why do raspberries taste so delicious you know they don't have to be this delicious for us to eat them and why do birds sing all the time I'm sure they're communicating you know there's a purpose to it but they probably don't need to sing as much and it's so beautiful it always just stayed with me because there's something about when you're in touch with that your heart opens and then you want to respond A lot of our busyness and doing gets in the way of us having that natural, simple response to the world around us. And I think putting ourselves in contact with things that are beautiful just naturally opens us up more to that way of looking at things. You know, that we're not trying to get something from them. We're not seeing the world as a resource, as something that can serve us. You're just delighted for it to exist for its own sake. There's something just really lovely about that. And I also think just in terms of beauty, it is really important we have a positive vision for something. Because you can talk about saving the world, or saving the environment. And I suppose you have to have a connection. Well, what are we trying to say? What is the vision we have rather than just being against things? And I think, again, beauty can give us that vision.
3: A phrase I really love is appreciation, not appropriation. In a way, beauty can be quite painful because you see something beautiful and you want it. And it would be quite painful. You know, that's the dukkha of wanting something you can't have or wanting things to be the way they're not. But if you can turn that from appropriation to appreciation, it can just shift your whole perspective. That was an experience I had on retreat with Vasantra. I was walking up the road every day and seeing a house that I found so beautiful that it hurt me because, you know, houses have always been my thing, interiors and environments. It was so beautiful. It sort of hurt me. And when we went back into the shine room, I said to Sandra, what what's this thing, you know, where we're trying not to get attached? How does that relate to what we're doing? And he said, well, how about if you just love everything? And I had such a strong response. I was shaking and crying when I went back up to my room, as if I'd never quite made that connection that if you love everything you don't have to want it for yourself loving beauty helps us to do that helps us to appreciate without wanting to own it which is such a painful thing and as you say it opens us up
0: the thing that was on my mind before you said that look was i'm aware you have this interest in rewilding which is quite an active thing to engage with i suppose some people might think of beauty almost unconsciously is a sort of passive appreciation of the world, what you're taking in through your senses, and the path of an artist where you're engaging with making, particularly making things that reflect not just exterior beauty, but interior beauty. And I can sort of understand in that way why you would find a house so beautiful that it hurts, because it's like it speaks to all of the things that really matter. The impermanence, the flow of time, the stories of all the people who've inhabited that place, the land itself. Why is rewelding important as one of the active things that you've decided to do about the ecological crisis? Why does that seem like a good fit?
3: Well, I think it's because the way that we often do our gardens with our lawns or the way that the farmers are working, it's quite sterile. It's monocultures. We have a lawn, it's all one plant and it's mown down so it never has any life in it. What we've started to do in our own garden, it's not a big lawn but we've left portions of it for the lawn just to grow. And there's this little green thing that is usually stunted and it's now in flower. It's grasses and it's waving and insects are crawling up it and landing on it and hopefully laying their eggs in it. My husband and I have got a little piece of land in Devon. It's a funny piece of land. It's not agricultural. It's on a slope. It's in a valley. And we've taken advice from the Devon Wildlife Trust and they've given us advice on how we can best make use of it for the environment and for the wildlife that's there. Making a wildlife meadow is actually quite difficult. You have to put in yellow rattle, you have to get the seed, you have to get rid of all the cut grass. So we're going to mow it, but leaving islands that will be refuges for whatever wants to use it. So practically speaking, it's a tiny piece of land, but I feel we're doing one thing. We can only do what we can do. And there are people all over Devon and probably all over the country with these different wildlife trusts that are being encouraged to have meadows and to let their land go wild. I find it fascinating that there are actually great swathes of estates in Scotland. Suffolk and Norfolk, there are three estates and three big farms that are rewilding, and they're joining up so that they're making corridors through for wildlife. So I find that's a very positive way, rather than complaining or being terribly frightened about the environment. There are things you can do, and you can do it in your own garden. You can do it by having a patch of nettles in the corner. You can do it by not mowing all of your lawn. For me, that's a positive way to make a difference.
0: Mm. This reminds me, if you'll indulge me with a Cambridge memory, one of my favourite places in Cambridge is that little corner of Trinity College Gardens where they've allowed just a rectangle of lawn to grow completely wild as a flower meadow, in amongst perfectly manicured classic Cambridge lawns with students lying around on them. And there's the bench in the middle of it with the quote from Gerard Manley Hopkins that says, long live the weeds in the wilderness yet on a brass plate and you can sit there just face the meadow and see decades worth now of wildflowers coming and going quite naturally and it's quite inspiring that in a way that level of care and attention can be done actually in your own garden as you say just a corner of nettles or allowing it to get weedy it's very encouraging somehow
2: i think the message is getting across because i had a little leaflet through my door from a neighbor saying let's all try not to mow our lawn so often So, hopefully, more of us can do that. Yeah.
3: Last month was no mo May, apparently. So, that was something everyone was encouraged not to mow their lawns in May.
2: I do have this strong sense that all of us who are wanting to protect the earth, that this greater mandala of uselessness, putting that as the big context, is what we need to do or not do. I have a sense that if we can be coming from this joy and beauty and enjoyment, then it'll be more effective. And also people won't get burnt out so much. There needs to be some joy and beauty there rather than just a sort of panic and I have to do it and I have to lift this huge rock, which I must admit, I sometimes do feel a bit like that.
3: Yeah. Actually, if you're talking about the greater mantle of uselessness, the whole point of rewilding is you just stop. Just stop doing anything. Nature doesn't need us. But nature will take over if we can just let go.
2: If living in the light of beauty in our lives is important, which I think we do or really believe or feel, just a question about what tips might we have for living more in the light of beauty in our lives. But I always come back to it's just body awareness and being in nature. When I started writing poetry and getting involved in the arts, it started with me realising that, I found walking meditation very boring and then getting curious about that. And then I started noticing my feet on the pavements. And then I noticed the details of pavements and things that people dropped on pavements and (laughs) cracks in the pavement. But it was all about body. It was all about my feet. And that was where it came from. So that's one thing. And the other thing that I always think is really key is just to reduce input, to simplify that always, always makes a difference. They always get very, very bored and then something magical happens.
3: Yes, I agree that it's just starting to really take notice. And when you start to take notice and slow down, you can get the intimacy that I talked about. And then you start to love, you start to love things. And the beauty comes from the heart opening, noticing actually you could be in Quite an ugly place. And if you start really paying attention and looking and noticing, it can just open your heart and make you have a very different experience. So it's important not to rush, rush by.
0: That's a good question, Padma Chandra. What comes to mind immediately is the lockdown's ending here where I live? In the last two weeks, I've been doing quite a bit of outdoor meditation, teaching and leading, because people can now gather outdoors, socially distanced, etc. But it's been a real delight doing this thing where, particularly if people are meditating, just inviting them to actually touch the earth and just sit with their hands, either touch their heart and then touch the earth, but spend a certain amount of time sitting just in contact, just having a sort of animal contact with the ground and not trying to do something with it or... Related to the story of the Buddha touching the earth, particularly just have a animal's skin on grass piece of contact with the earth. And, you know, to your point, Volokini, about even when you're in ugly places, I found myself extending that a bit. So I want to go and touch the walls of the rather ugly... In town, we have all these places you can now eat outdoors, but they're usually round the back of a fairly industrial building with some grotty astroturf on the ground and some ferns, you know? And actually, I found myself recoiling a bit at first and then wanting to go and actually touch the walls of the place and just have a sense of contact that is sort of reassuring. It's almost like it puts me back in context as an animal. You're in an environment. You don't have any choice about that. That's your natural state, you know. So something around that.
1: Tips are interesting, aren't they? Because one wants to say something really short and snappy that everyone can do. And, you know, you end up saying things like maybe rewilding or veganism. That can end up feeling a bit prescriptive. But I like what everyone else has said, it's more principles or even just kind of stepping back. And in a way, my tips would be quite similar to probably what you said, Padmachandra and Volokhany, just around being less busy, first of all, and then just paying attention to what's what's around. And I think... When we can do that, naturally, we're just more present and we can respond more effectively, more creatively to what's around us. And I'm just thinking today I was doing a period of doing nothing for about 15 minutes. This is part of the practice week that I'm doing. And I was sitting in the back garden, which was lovely, and I noticed there was a magpie and a hopping around. And I was just waiting for the magpie to take off and he hasn't. Actually, still in our garden hopping around. And there's something about that. The more I looked at him, the more concerned I felt for him. And I think he's damaged his wing. I've been talking to my housemate about seeing if we can figure out a way to help him. And anyway, it's just interesting because I think normally I might look out in the garden, I might see that for a minute and I kind of rush off because I've got something else to do. But just the fact that I was there long enough that suddenly it's just, I want to help respond in a way. It's just kind of natural, isn't it? Just when you have a bit more space and time. You can just respond more creatively to what's in front of you, whether that's the environment, whether that's another human being in pain or whatever it is, whatever it is in your field of awareness at the time.
2: One other thing that occurs to me just listening to you sitting in a garden is somebody said this to me, even if you're very busy, because sometimes it might not feel very easy to simplify your life or have all this time. <laughs> but you can just, in between things, you can just ask yourself, what have I not noticed? Is there something here that I've not noticed? You know, so you might just notice a certain sound that you weren't hearing or something like that, the colour of the wallpaper that you never noticed. <laughs> I don't know, just shifting the perspective a little bit, maybe.
0: Well, that feels like a very good place to end a podcast, Amachandra, with the invitation to awareness, that kind of open space of awareness that Sadiassi and Fulokini both evoked as well. Nothing too prescriptive, just a uh, beckoning into greater presence and attention which is in a way a lovely summation of what beauty seems to be about as an aspect of meaningful human experience. I'd like to thank everybody for taking part in this conversation. We'll include more details of various things you may have heard in the show notes. You can get them as soon as the podcast is available. But for now, first of all, thanks to you, Sudaysehi, for helping hold the space.
1: Yeah, thanks. It was a delight to hear this conversation and to, you know, I suppose also just to witness Padma Chandra and Volokhani's friendship. Just can't help but think you must have interesting conversations at your chapter. So it's kind of nice to feel like getting a little preview or sneak (laughs) look in at that. So yeah, thanks for sharing your reflections. It's been really beautiful.
0: (laughs) And thanks to you too, Volokhani. It's really lovely to have you with us.
3: Well, Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a lovely experience to share this with you, Padma Chandra, and to be hosted by two such lovely people. Thank you.
0: And Padma Chandra, hero again for us on the podcast. It's so nice when people come up with such great ideas for podcasts and <laughs> just says, I want to give, I want to do this. It's just a delight. So thank you again for all your time and love and energy.
2: Thank you, Chantadasa and Sade Asihi and Phil It's been really a beautiful experience to be with you in this space, talking about something very important. Yes, beauty. So thank you.
0: You can find out more about Buddhist Action Month if you go to thebuddhacenter.com forward slash action. You can maybe get involved with something local. Thank you for listening. And if you like this podcast, if you've been enjoying these voices from around the world, just little glimpses, insights into the richness of inner lives, people who don't even know you exist, and yet here you are meeting over the internet if you enjoy them please let other people know the world is awash with podcasts it's quite hard to find things the best kind of recommendation engine is your friends so please do tell people if you feel so moved go to your favorite podcast provider and leave a wee review tell people it's good and you never know you'll touch somebody's life somewhere without them even knowing you're there We'll see you again soon for more episodes of this particular podcast. Thanks again to Vilokini, to Sdaya Sahi, and to Padmachandra. And we'll see you again soon. Take care.